We never know when will be the last time that we gather as a congregation, and that's not changed. Uh, you don't know when will be the last time you gather with a congregation. You don't know which sermon is going to be the last one you'll ever hear. And I don't know which one will be the last one I ever preach. That's why Richard Baxter said we should always preach as dying men to dying men as, as if to never preach again. And so with that in mind, we turn to Revelation chapter 4. After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven and one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning the seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne in each of... On each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, Holy Holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. O oh Lord, who would ever dream that the mouths of mortal men would take it upon them to declare the mysteries of the throne room of heaven? Lord, help us as we step out in faith now and we trust your word. And we consider it. You have been faithful in every generation to reveal. And Lord, if we step away from this word one 
one step, we begin to presume. Lord, help us not to, to presume. Help us to tether our imaginations to the very word of the living God. To go no further. Lord, we ask that during our time together, that you would protect our physical bodies. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We've seen that the church of Jesus Christ is patiently enduring. That the church is dealing with the reality of false teachers. As the song says also, false sons within her pale. We've seen the church suffering from poverty. We've seen the saints of God slandered by other religious groups. We've seen particular saints suffering physical persecution, imprisonment, being put to death by the governing authorities, suffering the loss of work, the loss of money, the loss of financial security because they've stood against idolatry. We've noticed that some professing Christians are now beginning to invent ways to justify their compromise and to justify their their antinomianism, their anti-lawism. Churches, other churches are flourishing and doing just fine because they have compromised on the gospel. A lot of churches are sitting back, relaxing, feeling as though everything is fine and yet totally deceived. We know that times of great trial are expected to come upon the world, that Satan has a throne and that he is exercising power through the the evil world's systems like the government, or we might call it statism, paganism, materialism. This system of the world promises economic advancement, entertainment, luxury, comfort, prestige, prosperity, political power, the satisfaction of every carnal lust, and it promotes and justifies every form of sin imaginable in order to secure those ends. And we've also seen that Christ still walks with His churches. That He holds His churches in His his strong right hand. That He has defeated death for His saints. That His Word is meant to pierce and to convict His churches. That the Lord Jesus sees everything, judges all, has conquered all. That Christ alone has the fullness of His Holy Spirit to give to whoever would come to Him and take it. That the Lord Jesus is God incarnate, so He's totally unlike us, and yet at the same time, absolutely like God in every way. But Jesus Christ continues to open the doors of gospel ministry, and faithful believers will continue to preach the gospel, and the Spirit will continue to bless the faithfulness of His people with the fruit of saved and sanctified sinners. All of the promises of God are kept and fulfilled in Christ. What He says is true. What He promises, He gives. That Jesus Christ is the source, the sustainer, and the supreme goal of the old and the new creations. Now I'll leave it up to you to decide whether I've just described 
Asia Minor or whether I've just described our own day. But whether we look at Revelation chapters 1 to 3 or, or we, we read a newspaper or look outside, we're constantly reminded of the reality that confronts the church as she exists in a fallen world after the cross. You see, because of the fall, all of creation is subjected to futility. And because of the fall, all men are by nature children of wrath. That we come out of the womb at enmity with God and with one another. But because of the cross, Satan has been defeated. He has been cast out and bound. And having his primary scheme thwarted, he now, like, like the illustration I use, is like a, a wounded animal backed into a corner. He is now ferociously attempting to wreak havoc on the world and especially the kingdom of Christ as it is manifested in the church militant and the ministry of the church militant. And so the saints of God are now in the present day living from a position of victory already won And at the same time, violently pursuing a victory not yet accomplished, which is each of our own faithfulness unto death. We're chasing after it. We're we're driven by the already to pursue the not yet. Now as we move forward in the Revelation, we're transitioning now. If you go back to the outline, we're transitioning from vision 1 to vision 2. In the first vision, I told you at the beginning that if you would imagine a drone is hovering about five and a half feet above the ground, looking at eye level and can barely see over the heads and the shoulders of the saints in the churches of Asia Minor, looking at their world exactly as they see it and yet giving God's perspective on that world. Well, now we move to the second vision and here's the picture. You can imagine the the drone zips straight up into the heavens. The camera stays parallel for the most part, still looking right at eye level, but now it's gone from earth to heaven. Now let me give you a brief outline of the next four chapters, what we're going to see. And again, we're not going to see anything else moving forward in the Revelation that we've not already seen in some seed form. In chapter 4, we see that the Lord reigns. We're going to see His position over all things. In chapter 5, we'll see that the Lamb ransoms. And we'll focus there on Christ's work and salvation. In chapter 6, the nations rage. There is a consideration of life on earth after the cross. And then in chapter 7, we'll see that the Lamb rescues. That those that have been ransomed are then brought into the very presence of God. Again, all of that from the vantage point of the court of heaven. Now this pattern is very helpful. God, Christ, trial, glory. That's how we should consider things. When we consider the trials of our own day, we have to understand that we will not view them rightly. We will not think of them rightly until we have first understood who God is and what Christ has done. We look on who God is as as unchangeable, and then we look back upon Christ in in, in a past work, a completed work. And from that, we can begin to make sense of the trials on earth, and we can begin to look forward to the consummation. So if we wanted to present the sermon today, first off in the form of a question, it would be this. As the church endures the things that we see described in chapters 2 and 3, 
What's happening in heaven? If we look out in our world and we would to say we were to ask, as as America endures A, B, and C, what's happening in Washington? What's happening at the CDC? What's happening in Raleigh? How, can we imagine? Can we even begin to imagine our governing officials right now, what they might be doing as the church endures? What's happening in heaven? As the saints of the Most High God, living in the world of March 2020, A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, with all of its issues, what's happening in heaven right now? Or to be more specific, what's God doing right now? Right at this very moment, what's God doing? Now, I've, I've flown several times in my life, and so I've, I've picked up some habits, but I'm not so comfortable in flying on an airplane that I can just, I just sit back and relax like nothing's happened. I'm still uneasy about the whole thing. If there's turbulence, I've learned to do this. Look at the flight attendant and watch her. She lives in the air. She's experienced it all. She does this all the time. If she looks panicked, if she looks like she's afraid, I'm going to be afraid. I'm nervous. But if I look at her and she's going about her business like everything's normal, I can assume everything's normal. It was the same with, with God, of course, infinitely better. We get to peek into the throne room of heaven in Revelation chapter 4. We're going to study its occupants. And we get to ask ourselves, as we see what's happening in heaven, is there any reason whatsoever to panic? Now this vision has a lot in common with Ezekiel chapter 1, Daniel chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 6. I won't spend a lot of time flipping to those passages. And you can do that and make that comparison later. But there is a common theme that we see throughout Scripture. When you, when you read the Bible cover to cover and you begin to see what God does, you, certain, you sort of learn that He does certain things, especially in times of great need and uncertainty. God doesn't give us a manual and say, here's what you need to do in this particular circumstance. Now that this has come upon you, here's how to act. In those circumstances, what God has always done and what He continues to do is say, here I am. He reminds His people of who He is. He done it to Ezekiel. He done it to Daniel. He done it for Isaiah. And, and I think we could go multiple places. God just gives a little vision. The transfiguration. What's about to happen? Christ lets a few of His disciples see who He is. This is what God does. So let's first consider the visionary setting. Or the setting of this, this vision. We see that John speaks. If we wanted to put things in perspective, we could go back to chapter 1, the last time we heard John speak. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, etc. And then the next time John speaks, after this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet. Who is that? That's the Lord Jesus. That first voice said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Now remember that there is a great connection, a very detailed connection between the book of Daniel and the book of the Revelation. The things that Daniel saw... 
or that Nebuchadnezzar saw and that Daniel interpreted and then Daniel saw was sort of the entire history of the world almost, but from the view of these mighty kingdoms, big chunks of mighty kingdoms from very, very high. And Daniel was told, seal up the vision. John comes along and now he's opening up that, a very similar, the same vision, except he's now zoomed in to help the saints of the first century. A lot of similarities, but what Daniel sealed up, John is opening up for us. Now, Daniel 2.28, here, listen to the words of Daniel. He says, There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and He has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Then later on in that same chapter, Daniel 2.45, A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. In that one chapter, you have the latter days and after this, almost paralleled, synonymous statements, and yet the vision that was given to Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel is interpreting included Nebuchadnezzar's own kingdom. So when we read this phrase, what must take place after this, we see there the divine must, according to the eternal decree of God, the things that we're talking about now, begin with John's present day moving forward. Remember, this has to be useful to the seven churches of Asia Minor or it's irrelevant. It begins with John's day. He is not now describing the things that are going to take place after the church is raptured up into the sky and we enter into the season of the Great Tribulation or or however people interpret that. The, The Bible doesn't teach that. These are events that John's audience would have been able to read and would have been comforted by. So he's describing what these saints could expect in their own day and what all of the saints of God can expect to be the case moving forward from that point. He's describing what is reality during the, the, the church age between the advents of Christ. And he says, at once I was in the Spirit. He's taken up in an immediate revelation of the Spirit. The Spirit of God so comes upon John to reveal information to him that his temporal circumstances are overridden by the revelation itself. So as he he sees, what he sees, he sees with spiritual eyes. What he hears, he hears with spiritual ears. It, It wasn't as though if somebody else would have walked up to John and saw him, and they would have looked where he was looking and been able to see what he was seeing. It wasn't as though if he was hearing and they got close enough, they could hear what he was hearing. This is a spiritual revelation. That's why John's vision, like Ezekiel's, like Daniel's, in no way satisfies the imagination. None whatsoever. Because it wasn't meant to do that. John is about to describe the indescribable. He's going to use objects and colors, and sounds that he could conceive of, that his audience could conceive of, that we can sometimes conceive of, in an attempt to describe the inconceivable. Read Ezekiel chapter 1 and see how much sense you can make out of it. The point is not to satisfy the imagination. Now notice John saw a door standing open in heaven. He heard the voice, come up here. Then his state is altered or changed. At once I was in the Spirit. And then John, we could say, arrived. A throne stood in heaven. There there he's, he's present. That's the visionary setting. He's under the immediate influence 
and superintendents of the Spirit of God, and He has entered spiritually into the throne room of heaven. Notice secondly, the centerpiece of this vision. Behold, a throne stood in heaven. The word throne, as it relates to this particular throne, is used 38 times in the book of the Revelation. 17 of those are in chapters 4 and 5. 12 of those are in chapter 4. In the Revelation, thrones are always in heaven. You never see a throne on the earth. In this chapter, out of 11 verses, only one, a part of one, is used to describe the one on the throne, while 12 references are given to this throne. That lets us know that the intention of the revelation here is not to tell us what God looks like, it's to tell us what He is like. And so we could ask, John, you were there. What's God like? John says, behold, a throne. A throne is the seat of one in a position of power. It's the seat of the king. This is the place where you would find the king exercising his authority as king. He doesn't eat on the throne. He doesn't sleep on the throne. When he's on the throne, he's being king. He's ruling. Now the actual physical seat is not the focus. It's the meaning of the seat. It represents authority. It represents control, royalty. We could say absolute or supreme monarchical rule. A throne in Scripture is, is often used as a synecdoche for the position of the king. Consider 1 Chronicles 7.12. God is speaking to David about the, the Davidic covenant. and He says, I will establish your throne forever. Now God's not saying, David, I found some wood and some paint and some lacquer. And I'm going to fix you up a throne and come rain, come shine, no matter what happens, this thing's going to weather the elements. It's not what he's saying. He's talking about David's... Authority, his, his power, the dominion of that position. Now here he says, behold a throne. Now we're going to see 24 other thrones. But this throne is, is, in, is focused on in particular. This one stands out among the rest. Notice that there is one seated on the throne. That's important for the revelation. There is one seated on the throne. Not two. Not a panel. Not a senate, not an electoral college, not a Google Hangout, just one. This is none other than the throne of God Himself. Now don't try to picture it, because that's not going to help you. Just let your soul soak in the reality of the throne of God. Let me read to you some other texts. Psalm 9 and verse 4. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. So as God sits upon His throne, He has the authority to judge. And God reigns in righteousness. When God's on His throne, we have no reason to question His morality. We have no reason to question His benevolence. We have no reason to wonder if maybe behind closed doors He's taking kickbacks and He's somehow doing something immoral. Regardless of abuse of power on the earth, God sits enthroned in the heavens. God gives righteous 
judgment from His throne. Psalm 11.4, the Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eye sees, His eyelids test the children of man. He's enthroned over everything. He's in heaven. And He exercises omniscient oversight of everything from His throne. So regardless of what's happening on the earth, God is enthroned in the heavens. His throne's not here. It's there. Regardless of what's happening behind closed doors, God sees it all, knows it all. His eyelids test everything that's happening. Psalm 47 and verse 8, God reigns over the nations. He, God, sits on His holy throne. So God's authority is a universal authority. No man in any nation is outside of God's district. Regardless of where we might be on this earth, here, anywhere, wherever you go, God's ruling there. He reigns over everything. Psalm 93 and verse 2, Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. God's throne is eternal, unchanging, immovable, unshaken. Regardless of the circumstances in Asia Minor. This is what he wants them to see. God sits enthroned in the heavens. Regardless of the circumstances in medieval Europe, when the Black Plague killed 100% of those who were untreated and 50% of those who received treatment, God sits enthroned. Not sat, sits enthroned. Regardless of the circumstances right now in China or Italy or America or Africa or anywhere, God sits enthroned. This doesn't change. The side of the throne of God tells us of the absolute sovereignty of God. The position of God as supreme monarch. Undisputed potentate of all. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Whatsoever He pleases, that He does. God does what He wants, when He wants. If God doesn't want to do it, He's not going to do it. He doesn't allow anything to happen that will not and does not serve His predeterminate counsel. Nobody can challenge His authority. Nothing can happen outside of His purview. If all of the nations decided today that they wanted to get together and and put together all of their collective authority and all of their collective scientific minds and, and overthrow this throne, God would giggle and then He would use that to result to His own praise. No king, no president, no prime minister, no dictator takes a step to the left or the right apart from God's approval. Not one germ has ever moved from the air into the nasal passages of the elderly or the young apart from God. Not one sickness on this planet has ever been healed apart from His healing power. No medicine ever invented or discovered can be successful apart from Him making it successful. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is He. Here's the problem. People are trembling, but not because the Lord reigns. They weren't trembling last year at this time, but now they're trembling. Not because He reigns, but because 
something else. In their mind, something else now reigns. Something has some power. We've got to get away from it. We've got to hide from it. Something's going to get us. No, the Lord reigns. The nations ought to tremble because the Lord reigns. Rome is not sovereign. Satan is not sovereign. Babylon is not sovereign. I asked my kids this week, you heard anything in the news about Babylon? How's the, how's the virus doing in Babylon? What, what's the numbers? Gone. North Korea is not sovereign. America is not sovereign. God is sovereign. The throne is His. Period. One seated on the throne. That's the point of this chapter. That's the point. We could stop here. The point is the throne. Notice number three. The one on the throne. Again, the point is not to describe His appearance, but His position. But notice, He who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. There you go. Got got the picture in your mind? Around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Jasper is mentioned later, Revelation 21.11, as clear as crystal. So he's probably trying to describe some sort of translucent, bright, shining. And then Carnelian or Sardius is probably, if you Google these stones, they're every color of the rainbow, but probably a deep, dark red color. In Ezekiel chapter 1, it says, again, Ezekiel doesn't even... He doesn't even pretend to act like he knows what he's describing. He says, seating above the likeness of a throne was a likeness of a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness all around him. This is what John saw. Around him there is a rainbow, but like an emerald, it's green. Again in Ezekiel, he says, Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around him. The idea is that that John looks and he sees He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. It's just... Bright, shining effulgence that has the appearance of kind of like a man with a waist. And something is above what looks like the waist and something is below what looks like the waist. But notice, God is seated. He sat there. He who sat So think of the perspective of all these churches. They're suffering. The world around them is in turmoil. And they they look up into heaven and maybe they think, well, good, we're finally going to get to see God preparing some care packages. God's stuffing stuff into shoeboxes to give to us. No. God sits. God is seated stately and majestic. Like in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, Daniel says, As I looked, there were... Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. And if you've ever been in a courtroom, you get a little sense of this when everybody's just sort of murmuring under their breath and waiting and waiting and time passes and the 9 o'clock comes and the bailiff says, All rise. And you stand and the judge walks in and he sits. God 
sits. In Daniel, just before this, there's a beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, with great iron teeth, devouring and breaking pieces, breaking in pieces and stamping what was left. One had ten horns, and then there's another little horn, and one of the little horns is plucked up by the roots. The nations are raging, and kingdoms are coming up and coming down. And Daniel says, and then I saw the Ancient of Days take his seat. He sits in the heavens. God has taken His place in the divine council. Psalm 110.1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. Have you ever considered the serenity of God? Serenity is defined as the state of being calm, peaceful, and untroubled. So while our world seems to be in turmoil, we, we are experiencing a bit of turbulation or turbulence, the great turbulation. <laughs> As all this is happening around us, behold our God seated, relaxed, at ease. Saints in Ephesus are enduring. In Smyrna, they're dying. In Pergamum, we could imagine the wife of Antipas and his children trying to, to get on without him. In Thyatira, Jezebel is seducing the servants of Christ. In Philadelphia, they're preaching their hearts out. In America, we're hoarding toilet paper, wondering how we're going to pay our bills, wondering how much is the Fed going to shell out to each of us so that we can, we can move on. Behold our God, poised in regal splendor, absolutely self-possessed, undisturbed, unruffled, unworried. He sits. And not just physically still, because God does not have a body like man. It's perfectly tranquil in His entire essence. He is at perfect peace at all times for eternity. We can look at Him and we can say, well, if He's not, if he's not getting flustered... I probably shouldn't be all that flustered either. This, there is an application here. God should have more influence over our thinking and our acting than men. God's being, God's attributes, God's works, God's word, God's present mission in the world, this should have more influence over us than men. When was the last time we began to ration our stuff at home and save money so that the kingdom of Christ could advance on the earth? How many of us when we heard, oh, the, the, the government's going to be sending out checks? How many of us when we heard that began to think about what we could do with our money rather than, well, in Malawi they need some money for their, their mission budget? We don't think like God. How quick we are on our side of the fence to affirm God's absolute sovereignty and salvation and forget His absolute sovereignty over everything else. He rules over everything. Absolutely serene, sitting on His throne. Notice fourthly the scene around the throne. And by around the throne, I'm I'm addressing everything in verses 4 to 7. And notice... That everything in this scene is mentioned in its relationship to the throne. The throne is the point. The emphasis is on God's position as ruler, seated on the throne. 
Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now 24 is twice 12. 12 usually references or or symbolizes the people of God. Maybe a reference to the Old Testament saints symbolized in the, the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of Christ. I think the best explanation here, because this is a spiritual vision of a spiritual place, is not to say these are literally the 12 sons of Jacob and the the 12 apostles, but these are angels, angelic representatives, representing the people of God in all ages there around the throne. And they encircle the throne to exemplify to us what is our true purpose in existence, to worship God. They sit on thrones in white with crowns. Showing truths we've already seen in chapters 2 and 3. Chapter 2, verse 10, I will give you the crown of life. Chapter 3, verse 5, you'll be clothed in white garments. Chapter 3, verse 21, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Realities that we look forward to and pursue after and we want to be faithful unto the end to achieve them. And yet here we see these realities are already displayed in the heavenlies. Because if we are in union with Christ, we already have all of the blessings. We're already seated with him there. We see from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Same phrase used in chapter 8, chapter 11, and chapter 16. Every time following a series of judgments. When the children of Israel encamped at Mount Sinai, they heard thunders and lightnings. There was a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Then God spoke to them. And it says, when they heard the flashes and the lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, they were afraid and trembled and stood far off. These horrifying, tumultuous signs in the heavens manifest God's awesome majesty, especially in judgment in the Revelation. Psalm 18 Verses 13 to 15 says, The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered His voice, hailstone and coals of fire. And He sent out His arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at Your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of Your nostrils. And let me remind you, as the Sovereign Lord is the God of judgment, that God uses many things to judge men. Deuteronomy 28, verses 58 to 61 says, If you are not careful to do all of the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, sicknesses, grievous and lasting, And He will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid and they shall cling to you. God uses sicknesses and diseases to bring judgment upon men. Now here's the comfort. The manifestation of the judgments of God are coming, are issuing from the throne. They're coming from the the seat of the sovereign and serene God who loves us. If you don't belong to God, you have every reason to be terrified. Hoard up toilet paper. Get water. Get food. You had better hide and live out your life as long as you can because when He comes, it will all be over. But for those who belong to God, we say, the judgments are coming from the One who loves me and whom I love. 
If God is for us, who can be against us? If He didn't spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not graciously with Him give us all things and protect His people? Nothing can separate us from the love of this God. So there's comfort here, even as we see the symbols of His judgment. That's comfort to the people of God. Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Again, this is the Holy Spirit of God there present with Him. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. This seems to parallel the language of Exodus 24, which says they saw the God of Israel. There was under His feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. In the Revelation, by the way, there's many references to the sea. And very often the the sea from the world's perspective is in turmoil. It's the, the place of great disaster. But yet from God's perspective, it's like glass, as calm as it could be. Revelation 4, 4 to 7, around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. More than likely the same as the cherubim in Ezekiel chapter 1. Angelic representation of what some have called the rest of animate life on the earth. And so if you put the elders and the living ones here, the living creatures together, you have representation of the different kingdoms of created life doing what they were designed to do. Worship God. All of this together reveals to us the heavenly retinue, the attendance to the throne of God, His royal court. As we read in 1 Kings twenty two nineteen, Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on His throne, and all the host of heaven standing beside Him on His right hand and on His left. Daniel chapter 7, verse 10, A stream of fire issued and came out from before Him. A thousand thousands served Him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before Him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. If we might measure a king by his retinue, there is no king which surpasses the Most High God. He reigns over all. His attendants surpass anything we can even imagine. Notice fifthly the heavenly hymnody. All of the attention in heaven is on the one seated on the throne. Everything that is mentioned is in relation to to the throne and their existence, their description here is meant to elevate Him in our hearts. If this is what's happening in heaven, what are we doing? And both the cherubim and the elders are singing songs of praise to God. The cherubim, like the seraphim of Isaiah 6, are worshiping God for who He is. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes. We see that two times, a reference to the full of eyes all around and within. They see, they observe, they watch, they they take in information. And, and, And then what do they do? What comes out? Once they've taken in everything around them, what comes out? Holy, holy, holy. They never cease to say day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Notice there is... 
this is who God is. Nothing of His work. Nothing of His relationship to creation. Nothing of His relationship to mankind as the apex of His creation. Nothing of His relationship to His people. This is pure, simple exaltation and adoration of God for who He is. Period. God is holy. Completely other than. And God is thrice holy. Holy, holy, holy. The most holy. There's none holier than God. He he can't be any holier than He is. He can't be any less holy. He can't be any more holy. He is as holy as one can be. He's in a category all of His own. Completely separate. God is omnipotent. He is the Lord God Almighty. The God of all power. He is all strength because He is all power. All power comes from Him. He does whatever He pleases. Because He's sovereign, He has the right to do whatever He pleases. Because He's omnipotent, He has the ability to do whatever He pleases. None can stay His hand. None can slow Him down. None can thwart His working. If God's doing something, nothing can make Him stop. Right now, if God's doing something in the world, you can't stop it. If God's not doing something, you can't force His hand and make Him do it. He's almighty. He's omnipotent. We also see here His eternality. He's the one who was and who is and who is to come. God is infinite. That is, He is without limit with regard to space and time. And to say that God is infinite in in regard to time is to address His eternality. He's not limited by the creature called time. God invented time. He's before time. He's after time. He looks down upon time like we would watch an ant crawl across the countertop. It's not, he doesn't, he's not affected by it. He watches it. He's eternal. God is before creation. God is before the establishment of Rome. God is before Asia Minor. God is before these churches were planted. God is before we got here. And He is when we're gone. He's eternal. Because He's eternal, He's also immutable and impassable. Present circumstances have not affected God. Have not changed God. God's not beginning to feel the pressure to act as every, as every human on earth is now looking right above them at, in the chain of command and we're all, everybody's looking to the highest people telling us what to do. God's not, we're not all turning to God and, and now He's beginning to feel the pressure of what needs to be done. Nothing's changed. He's not less God now than He has been in eternity. He's not going to be more God when He finally comes and rescues His people. He is. He's Holy, He's omnipotent, He's eternal. That's where true worship begins, with who He is. We start with who He is, not what He's done. We'll get there. If everybody in this room goes home today with a virus and dies tomorrow, God is holy, God is omnipotent, God is eternal, God has not changed. We do not base our worship of God and our adoration of God on what He's done. Now, it will elevate because when we begin to see what He's done, but He doesn't change. So He's worshipped for who He is. And then the elders follow suit. They, they reciprocate the praise to God then for what He's done. 
Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. Why is that? We very often make, or you hear this idea put forth, and the idea is that, that men recognize that whatever reward they have, they have to return the praise to Him. That the, the rewards that we get are really just the result of His faithfulness to His own Word. But I think more than any of that, the idea is that in the presence of God, there's no room for any other accolade. There's no room for anybody to wear a badge or a crown or, or anything in God's presence. They reckon, it, it's, it, the picture is almost like they, they, God is worshipped and they, they get it off of Him because they don't want to receive any glory. They don't want anybody looking at them. Nothing to me. Not to us, O oh Lord. Not to us, but to Your name be praised. That's the idea. It's not just a, a sliding of the throne and saying we're worshiping God. It's, it's swatting it off. We've got to get this away from us. In His presence, we don't, we don't want anybody looking at us. No praise to us. And they say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Glory. Praise to God specifically for His infinite perfections. Honor, respect, allegiance, reverence to God for who He is. Power, all authority and controlling influence. We've seen our nation just hand over authority this week. Just take it. Take control, please, and tell us what to do. Only God is worthy of that kind of authority. God is the only one we should ever look at and say, you know, He's worthy of the power. Just, just give it to Him and let Him do His working. Authority, controlling influence over everything. Only God deserves praise. God alone is ultimately worthy of our allegiance and our reverence. Only God is worthy to execute power. Now why is that? Because He's the Creator. For you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. Now it's amazing to think that by the very Word of God, creation was... But here we go even further. By an act of the will of God, creation came to be and continues to be. By your will, they existed. All things that exist. This is our God. Sovereign, serene, holy, almighty, eternal, Creator, worthy of glory and honor and power and thanksgiving. And if we, if you, in His presence, we concede all prestige, all achievements, all symbols of personal recognition, we deliver it over to Him. We dare not, dare not take any of that from Him. Attempt to usurp in any way. Attempt to receive any glory any power, any authority in His presence, we, we gladly deliver it over and say, it's you, 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 you. That's the picture in heaven right now. As our world is experiencing turbulence, in heaven they're going, you, 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 
You, there is a sense, and, and I'm not an open theist, but there is a sense in which in heaven, they're, they're not concerned about what's happening here. They're not concerned. Because they know there's one on the throne. So let's apply this briefly. Number one, heaven's throne obsession is a good thing. This is a good thing. If we go back to the opening of this book, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show His servants. God, God has given this to Christ to give to us. We're blessed if we read it out loud. We're blessed if we hear it. We're blessed if we keep it. And then when John began to write, he says, this is grace to you and peace from Him who was and is and is to come. It's a good thing. God has given this chapter for us as a blessing for the servants of Christ, for our grace, for our peace. This scene gives us comfort in every affliction because we know no matter what, God's on His throne. Any suffering that we might experience is not happening outside of His control. Any true persecution that comes upon the church or true blessing that comes upon the church. It's happening on His watch. It's not that if He looks away for a second, all of a sudden persecution is unleashed. No, in every affliction, He sits enthroned. This gives us confidence in every opposition. When we face opposition due to our faith, we have to understand no no opponent can contend with our God. It doesn't matter what threats we receive. They can't act upon a threat unless He allows them to act. And even if they begin to act, whatever they might do, they can't thwart His plan. All they can do is find themselves coming along in line with it to purify the bride. So it's comfort, it's confidence. It's a good thing because it helps us settle our devotion, hopefully. It unites our hearts around the one who reigns. When we read this, hopefully it helps us to settle in our minds. It's okay to trust God. It's okay. We can rest there. Who would not follow the one who rules overall? Would we not be better just to obey the sovereign Lord Should His Word not carry more weight in our hearts than the words of men? He's sovereign. God desires to console us. And the very best thing that He can do, the best thing He can give us Himself, just let us see Him. Just let us see Him. He wants us to rest in Him, to be strengthened in Him. He wants us to find our refuge in Him. He's not hiding it. He's giving it. Here it is. God really wants us to be at peace in our souls. He desires that. He doesn't, get, he doesn't get any kicks off of watching us fret. He wants us to be at peace. And that only comes when we will look away from this world and to Him. Look at Him. This is for our good to read this. And secondly, churches are to look, learn, and model this worship. Remember, this was sent to the seven churches. Some of them were faithful. Some of them had begun to compromise. Some of them extremely compromised. Well, we've been taught to pray, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, what's happening in heaven? 
undistracted, obsessive adoration of God for who He is and what He's done. So what should our worship on earth look like? The same. Undistracted, obsessive adoration of God for who He is and what He's done. Now, chapter 4 gives us one of two pieces to the, the puzzle of our praise. That would have been a good series title. The puzzle of our praise. Part one is God on His throne. Worship for who He is and for what He's done. Next week we'll see part number two. Christ exalted for who He is and for what He's done. If we'll give ourselves to knowing God and worshiping Him rightly, I promise you the issues of this world are going to seem microscopic. You're you're going to be taken up. It'll busy your time. So let's pray. God would write these things on our hearts. Men, if there were ever a time to pray, it's now.